Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech. And recently, I got an email from Tech Stuff listener Lim asking me to do an episode about the Space Shuttle program, and I'm going to do that. But it really sent me down a very long rabbit hole, and I thought it might be fun to look at some of the early manned spacecraft and a couple of the unmanned ones, too, that preceded the space shuttle program. So we're actually going to do a block of space-related episodes. This is the first one. We're going to have several more, including ones about different eras of space exploration, the different rockets that have been used in space exploration, and the space shuttle program. So... We're blasting off into outer space for a few episodes. I hope you enjoy the ride. Now, before I get started, I want to give you guys some trigger warnings early on in this episode. So I'll be talking a bit about some early space missions that involve animals, and not all of those are happy stories. So if you are distressed by sad stories about animals, and there is one coming up later in this episode, I'll point it out when I get to that section Just be aware that that's going to happen. And second trigger warning, I'm one of those people who gets distressed about sad stories about animals. So if you get distressed by bald tech podcasters who are barely able to keep it together on microphone because they're talking about a sweet doggy, then this is your trigger warning for that as well. Before there were spacecraft with actual human beings in them, there were many earlier experiments and projects and thought experiments that provided valuable information about what it would take to get people into space. The scientists and engineers responsible for those experiments came from all over, and much of their work was advanced not through a pursuit of knowledge, but through conflict. And I've mentioned this in other episodes, but the space race was largely fueled by pretty ugly political rivalries, and a need to demonstrate a position of technological dominance and capability. Now, I don't say that to diminish the incredible contributions of countless individuals who have dedicated their lives to exploring the unknown, whether it is piloting a spacecraft or working on Earth so that others can do that. I I say it to illustrate that much of the work they did was made possible because the people in charge of the purse strings, the ones who were actually paying the checks, were really interested in their country being seen as the most powerful and, more importantly, unassailable entity on Earth. So, double-edged sword. Before I talk about any specific spacecraft, I want to give an overview about some of those early scientists and engineers who helped pave the way. Now, I could go all the way back to the Renaissance, when folks like Galileo made astronomical observations that challenged the prevailing geocentric view of the universe. But that would make this show way too long, and I've already got five episodes planned in this block. I don't need to add more to them, so I'm going to skip ahead a bit. One person I do feel I must mention published a work at the end of the 19th century that was incredibly important. His name was Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, a Russian scientist. In 1896, he began writing a work. The English title of this work is Exploration of Cosmic Space by Means of Reaction Devices. And essentially, Tsiolkovsky was working out the logistics of escaping Earth's gravity, going to space, and using rockets to do it. He did this at a time when Russia was still under the control of the Tsar. 
In fact, it really wasn't until after the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the formation of the Soviet Union in 1922 that Tsiolkovsky really received any support for his work. The Soviet government was very interested in rockets that could go really, really far. Tsiolkovsky wasn't just a theorist either. He would also test his ideas. He introduced the concept of using wind tunnels to judge rocket aerodynamic design, for example. So he was a practical as well, well as a theoretical physicist. Over in the United States, meanwhile, a physicist named Robert Goddard was also working out the requirements to send a rocket to space. He, he came out long a little bit after Tsiolkovsky. He also invented liquid-fueled rockets. He received patents for his designs in 1914, and he built the first working liquid-fueled rocket in the mid-1920s. He pioneered work in elements like gyroscopic control to help with flight stability and also power-driven fuel pumps for fuel management. And a couple of years later, scientists in Europe would create similar designs, largely independently, which would be put to use in Germany's V-2 rockets during World War II. The V-2 is short for Vergeltungswaffe 2, or Retribution Weapon 2, which, yeah, that kind of tells you the purpose of that particular piece of technology. It was not meant to explore space. However, on June 20th, 1944, engineers conducted a test of a V-2 rocket that saw it reach an altitude of 176 kilometers. That made the V-2 the first rocket to cross the Karman line, which you could call the edge of space. The Karman line is at 100 kilometers above mean sea level, and it's named after Theodor von Karman, who was a uh, Hungarian-American engineer. He proposed that that altitude would mark the point where it would be impossible to maintain your, your flight through uh, lift alone, at least through conventional means, because the atmosphere would be too thin to support an aircraft via lift, unless the aircraft were actually traveling faster than orbital velocity. Now, interestingly... In the United States, it doesn't take as far to get up to space. You don't have to go up to 100 kilometers to be in space. Now, I don't mean that space is magically closer to the United States soil or anything. Rather, I mean the United States Air Force calls anyone who has traveled at a, an altitude higher than 80 kilometers over sea level an astronaut. So if you go higher than 80 kilometers and you're in the U.S. Air Force, you're an astronaut. If you are anywhere else in the world, they would say, you haven't actually been to space yet. You need to go another 20 kilometers. But I just thought that was an interesting little side point. At the end of World War II, there was a scramble among allied powers to grab up some of the more important assets that were formerly held by the Axis powers. Two of the assets that the United States really wanted were the V-2 rockets Germany had been using to bombard various countries and the scientists who had helped design those rockets. And the U.S. did not want to put the scientists on trial for developing weapons of mass destruction, even though they had killed countless civilians. Instead, they wanted those scientists to build rockets for the good old U.S. of A. This was called Operation Paperclip. In 1946, the United States launched some V-2 rockets to the edge of space, but that would be the U.S. Air Force definition of the edge of space, meaning it was around 80 kilometers altitude, not 100. And work on the V-2 led to the development of two-stage rockets, which, as their name suggests, means the rockets have two segments designed to provide the energy needed to boost the rocket out into space. I'll cover more details about rockets and stage rockets and what that all means in an upcoming episode of Tech Stuff. Now, here's the part of the episode where I get really sad 
the bit that I warned you about earlier, because I'm a softy and I love dogs. So this could be a little hard for me to get through. It was hard for me to research and write. I don't know if it's going to be hard for me to talk about, but we'll find out together. So just take my hand. We'll make it through this. Beginning in the early 1950s, the Soviet Union began to experiment with simple spacecraft capsules, and they put dogs in these capsules to test and see if it might be viable to send a human into space. No one was really sure yet. The first two dogs to do this were named Desik and Saigon. These were both put in very tiny capsules. They were actually trained by being put into uh, increasingly smaller crates over prolonged periods of time because they would have to sit in these very tiny capsules for quite some time. They were carried by R1 rockets to an altitude of 100 kilometers, which meant that they were actually crossing the Karman line. They were not going into orbit, though. They were just going very, very high up into the atmosphere and then coming back down. They were in special pressure suits, and they were inside a little pressurized cabin. So the the case they were in was a pressurized case. Both of them returned from that first test flight alive and well on July 22nd, 1951. Desik would be put on another test flight on July 29th, 1951 with another dog named Lisa. But at that occasion, we weren't so lucky. The two dogs died when the parachute for their capsule failed to deploy. Saigon, however, would be adopted by a Soviet scientist and would not go on any more flights and lived out her life fine. The Soviets did several more tests. They gradually would increase the altitudes until they reached about 450 kilometers, and by then they were using R-5A rockets in the late 1950s. And then there was Laika. Okay, so on October 4th, 1957, the Soviets launched Sputnik 1. That was the first man-made satellite to reach Earth orbit, to actually orbit the Earth in full. It was a silver sphere that went beep. That's essentially all it did. It sent out a radio signal and it orbited the Earth. It was also a huge wake-up call to people in the United States. Scientists and government officials had known about Russian work in the space program and also about their advances in rocketry for a while, but Sputnik, which could be detected by amateur radio operators, and it was. Ham operators were detecting this satellite in real time as it crossed overhead. It was proof the Soviets could put something up into space that could travel to the other side of the world. And if they could do it with a sphere what went beep, they might be able to do it with a bomb. And this was when the USSR and the USA were engaged in a cold war. So this was a big deal. It really lit fires in the United States, not just in the space program, but for a host of other technological research projects, some of which would even evolve into stuff like the Internet. So that's Sputnik 1. And I did a full episode on it in the past, so I'm not going to go into further detail right here. When we come back, after I've steeled myself, we'll tell the sad story of Sputnik 2 and Laika. But first, let's take a quick break and thank our sponsor. So Sputnik 1 was an unmanned satellite. Sputnik 2 would be the first spacecraft to carry a living creature inside of it and go into Earth orbit. And that living creature was Laika. Sputnik 2 launched on November 3rd, 1957, just a month after Sputnik 1 launched. 
And inside the capsule was Laika, a dog that would become the first animal to enter Earth orbit. And unlike the earlier tests with dogs, this was a one-way ticket from the beginning. The other experiments were designed in an effort to ensure the dog's survival. The scientists wanted the dogs to come back down and, and safely land, but they had no such plans for Sputnik 2. Laika was going to go up into orbit, and the Soviets didn't have any way to bring her back down safely. They knew the satellite would encounter drag, it would lose speed, it would eventually have its orbit decay, and the spacecraft would re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. They had no way of controlling its descent or mitigating the problems of heat buildup. Laika, no matter what, was not going to survive that trip. She didn't live very long. Uh, when she died is actually a matter of some mystery. The Soviet Union originally reported that she actually survived a full week in orbit, which is kind of horrifying to me. But equally horrifying are the points of evidence that point otherwise. Later documents said she died only a few hours after launch because the temperature inside the capsule reached more than 100 degrees. The forces she endured were pretty rough. Uh, data from Sputnik 2 indicates the capsule's temperature increased after it orbited the Earth three times, and that was the beginning of the end for her. And the story really rips me up every time I think about it, because on the one hand, I certainly understand the need to test whether or not it might be possible to send a person to space and into orbit safely. That is a huge, huge risk. And it was full of unknowns. We had never done it before. So you have to be sure that's going to be safe before you put a human life at risk. And it's not like we had the technological capabilities at that time to do this without an actual organism on board to see what happens to that organism, but it's still a really hard story for me to get through. Oleg Gazinko, who was one of the scientists who worked on Sputnik 2, would later say that the mission wasn't designed to gather sufficient information that would justify the death of Laika. He expressed regret in his involvement and the decision to sacrifice her. Essentially, he said, we didn't get enough information from this experiment to justify killing an animal in this way. By the way, Laika's legacy lives on in multiple forms of media. There's Nick Abadze's uh, novel, Laika. It's a fictional account of her story. The animation studio Laika is named after her. That's the studio that did films like Coraline and Kubo and the Two Strings. There are poems about her. There are songs. And my favorite, in case you want to listen, but I warn you, uh, it is emotional, is a sad song by Jonathan Colton. It's called Space Doggity. It's actually an homage to David Bowie's Space Oddity song. He was given a challenge to transform a song, and the specific song was Space Oddity by David Bowie. So he took that and he said, I'm known for doing all these songs about monkeys, so I wasn't going to do one about the first monkey in space. I decided to do one about the first dog. And it's a really sweet song. If you're a dog lover, it's uh, it's it's very sad, but it's worth a listen. It's a very good song. All right, I got to get it back together and talk more about spacecraft. So we're through with the animal cruelty stuff, I think. While Sputnik 2 did not gather that much useful information, it did show that it was possible to keep a living organism alive in orbit, barring technological failures. And so now the race was on to see who could get a human being into orbit first. Over in the United States, efforts were rushing along with the Mercury program. 
Understandably, there were many launches with unmanned versions of the Mercury capsule. They wanted to test its spaceworthiness before ever putting an actual human being inside of it and sending that human off into space. And there was one test with a special pilot. It was for the Mercury Redstone 2 mission. Uh, Mercury missions were given different designations. The Mercury Redstone missions were suborbital, meaning these were tests where the Mercury capsule was sent up into space, but not into an orbit around the Earth. It would just go up and then come back down. This was late in the testing phase after they had fired off multiple Mercury capsules that were unmanned. The special pilot was a chimpanzee, later named Ham. Ham's name comes from the lab that trained him for the mission. It's the Holloman Aerospace Medical Center, so it was kind of an acronym. Ham was trained to activate switches when presented with the stimulus of a lit indicator. So a light lights up, and the chimpanzee would reach out and hit a switch. Uh, It was trained this way, he was trained this way by, he was given banana pellets whenever he did it correctly, so he was rewarded. If he didn't do it, he would get a very mild electric shock on his feet, which sounds pretty awful, but it was mild. It was not something that was enough to harm him, but to, you know, to sting a bit and and to essentially train him into this behavior. The whole point of it was the, the, the medical center wanted to train him to perform repetitive routine tasks and to be able to do it on command because they weren't sure what would happen when someone was in orbit. Would they maintain that ability? Would they be able to continue to do these routine tasks while they were in orbit? Or would weightlessness affect you in such a way that you you were no longer able to, to do this? Because if you put a pilot up into orbit, and it turns out after a short while that weightlessness or microgravity, if you want to be more specific, uh, has a negative effect, then you could condemn that person to die because they're no longer able to do whatever they need to do in order to return to Earth safely. So this was a a test to see, would weightlessness or microgravity have that negative impact on cognitive abilities? So Ham got trained in this way, learned how to flip switches according to lights being lit up. Ham was not, by the way, piloting anything. Ham was, again, uh, acting on these little these little lights that would blink on a console and would uh, react to that. On January 31st, 1961, Ham, who at that point did not actually have a name yet because NASA thought it might be a bad idea to name the chimpanzee just in case something did go wrong. If something went wrong and they had named the chimpanzee, it would create kind of an emotional anchor point that might make it even more difficult to move forward with the space program. So he was just number 65 until he came back. Anyway, he he got into a Mercury capsule, or was put into a Mercury capsule, I should say. I'll talk more about what those capsules were like in just a little bit. And he would perform his duties of switching switches on command pretty much as he would on Earth. So he sent up into orbit, and he saw the little lights, and he flipped the little switches, And uh, apparently it was pretty much the same as he would have done back at home. It was a little slower, but not by much. It was like a split second. So it wasn't wasn't statistically important. It appeared that the rigors of space and the effects of microgravity were not negatively impacting his ability to think and react in that way, which was a relief because there were also other issues that happened that fortunately did not affect Ham's... uh, uh, 
health. For one thing, the spacecraft lost air pressure. There was a a, a problem, a breach, uh, but Ham, Ham was inside a pressurized capsule inside the spacecraft. The capsule part maintained its pressure. So while the spacecraft itself lost some air pressure, Ham was still safe inside. Uh, his flight was suborbital. It did not go all the way up into orbit. It lasted about 16 and a half minutes long. He landed safely in the ocean because that's how the Mercury capsules were designed to, to make an ocean landing. There was a bit of a scare because the capsule had that small breach. It actually started to, or not the capsule, but the spacecraft had that small breach. It actually started filling up with water upon landing in the ocean. But the retrieval crew was able to get to Ham in plenty of time. And so Ham was uh, extracted from the spacecraft. Uh, there was otherwise a danger that Ham, really very real danger that Ham could have drowned if they hadn't gotten to him in time. Uh, he then was transitioned to live out most of his life at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., part of the Smithsonian. But uh, in 1980, was transferred to the North Carolina Zoo, and that's where he passed away on January 19th, 1983. And he was in his mid-20s, probably 25 or 26. That's actually pretty young for a chimpanzee, which can live up to age 50. Uh, not entirely certain what caused his demise. I don't know if he just got a disease or what. I couldn't find a whole lot of information about what led to that. But uh, he did get that name upon landing, and he made history as the first non-human hominid in space. Meanwhile, over in the Soviet Union, there was the Vostok program that was going strong. So Mercury was starting to work with these unmanned missions and the one with the chimpanzee. Over in the Soviet Union, there was a push to go toward uh, into space with a, a program called Vostok, V-O-S-T-O-K. The Vostok looked like kind of a giant circuitry component to me. Uh, there was a re-entry capsule. That's where the, the crew member would sit. It was a one-person spacecraft. And that was uh, a sphere, essentially. And then had sort of a conical base to it. That's where the retro rocket would be. And it was supposed to jettison off the spherical part. And uh, the sphere was 2.3 meters in diameter. That's about 7.5 feet in diameter. So the cosmonaut didn't have a whole lot of room inside, but uh, it wasn't the most cramped quarters of any spacecraft. It did have some odd designs to it. Apparently, the instrumentation was at a 90-degree angle from the the forward-facing position of the cosmonaut, meaning that the cosmonaut was going to have to turn his or her head 90 degrees in order to see the instrumentation panel. That seems like a weird design to me, but um, that's... I guess just the the product of having to do this so quickly. Uh, also, there was an important part of figuring out where to distribute the weight in this spacecraft. Uh, see, it's spherical because there was no way to control the capsule's path and orientation once it re-entered Earth's atmosphere and separated from its engine system that was in that, that conical section. Uh, the spherical design meant it had to be shielded on all sides because there was no way to be absolutely certain how it might be oriented once it began to descend. The best the Soviets could do was design the sphere in such a way that the equipment inside would offset the center, the natural center of gravity for the vehicle and thus create a tendency for it to maneuver into a predictable orientation. Also, the cosmonaut was meant to actually eject from the capsule during descent once reaching an altitude of 7 kilometers. From there, the cosmonaut would float on down with a parachute, and the capsule would land on its own. 
The Soviets didn't quite have time to develop a capsule that could descend gently enough to ensure the survival of the human inside of it, so this was a necessary step. It wasn't like an emergency uh, procedure, although the Soviet Union did call it that for a while. This was actually normal practice, was that the, the cosmonaut would eject from the spacecraft at seven kilometers and then parachute down by themselves. The Vostok system had a retro rocket designed to slow the spacecraft down enough in orbit to purposefully re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, and if that failed, the spacecraft would likely remain in orbit for up to 10 days. So cosmonauts were given enough food and oxygen to last that long just in case. In other words, there was no backup system. If the retro rocket failed, then the cosmonaut was going to be forced to sit there and wait until the orbital decay of the spacecraft was enough for it to force it to go and land uh, or, or re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. And there was no real predicting where that might happen at that point, really. It's, it would be based upon, uh, well, whatever the, the actual speed of the spacecraft was and its orbital altitude at that point. But uh, yeah, it's kind of scary to think there was no backup system to re-enter into the Earth's atmosphere in a controlled way and that it might just require you to wait it out for 10 days. Also, in a, a spacecraft that had notoriously bad waste removal systems. I'll leave it at that. On that happy note, let's take another quick break and thank our sponsors. All right, backtracking a little bit, the first organisms to launch into orbit and return alive were an early prototype of this Vostok capsule. It was uh, the Vostok 1K model that carried them. Uh, it was the Korobolt Sputnik 2, which in the West we call Sputnik 5. That was the specific mission to carry animals into orbit and return safely. Uh, and did so successfully. It launched August 19, 1960, and it carried Belka and Strelka, two dogs, uh, plus it had a couple of rats in there, a whole bunch of mice, and some plants. It completed three orbits of the Earth, and then it returned safely. So everyone lived on that one. The first human flight into orbit was aboard a Vostok 3KA spacecraft, which had the official name Vostok 1, and I know that's confusing because the Vostok 1K was a type of spacecraft, wasn't the name, that was the classification. The Vostok 1 was the name of a spacecraft, but its classification was Vostok 3KA. Yay. The cosmonaut aboard that flight was Yuri Gagarin, and he launched into the heavens on April 12, 1961. He was the first of six manned flights aboard the Vostok 3KA spacecraft model. The sixth one of those flights actually saw Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space. She launched on June 16, 1963. The Vostok 1 spacecraft had manual pilot controls, but they were meant to be used only in the case of an emergency. The plan was that all the controls of the spacecraft would happen automatically or would be issued from ground control. And the fear was that no one was really sure what spaceflight was going to do to a person's ability to think and react. It's that same thing that the United States was trying to test with the chimpanzee. So it could be that weightlessness could cause some sort of space madness, or maybe the pilot just gets disoriented to the point where that control of the spacecraft would be in danger. So the manual controls were only supposed to be activated by initiating a code sequence aboard the spacecraft, and the pilot was not supposed to be told what the code was 
unless there was an emergency. So if it became necessary, ground control could send up a message to Yuri and say, hey, here's the code sequence you need in order to take manual control of your spacecraft. However, as it turns out, at least one person gave Yuri the code before he even got into the capsule, just in case. The Vostok 1 would launch at 6.07 a.m. Ten minutes after launch, Yuri was in orbit. He made one orbit of the Earth, and at 7.25 a.m. or thereabouts, his spacecraft's retro rocket fired to slow down the spacecraft enough for re-entry, and things went a bit scary at first. The re-entry model for the Vostok 1 is that sphere I mentioned earlier, right? It's a sphere that's kind of attached to a conical base. Well, the conical base is supposed to detach from the sphere upon re-entry. It's supposed to, uh, to, to separate from little explosive bolts. But that's not exactly what happened. Part of it ended up sticking to the sphere. It was Uh, strapped there. There was a bundle of wires that kept the two pieces tethered together, which complicated matters. The sphere was meant to fall in a very controlled way, but with this added weight that was tethered to it, it was causing lots of gyrations and rotations. I can't imagine what the forces felt like inside the spacecraft as it was plummeting down and turning unpredictably. Yuri ended up experiencing forces around 8G. That's eight times the force of gravity we feel here on Earth. But fortunately, through that process, the conical section eventually broke away and the sphere was able to reorient properly. And at 7.55, the reentry model reached the altitude of seven kilometers and Yuri ejected. His parachute deployed and he would land in Russia at 8.05, about two hours after he had launched. Now, a little less than a month after his successful flight and orbit of the Earth aboard the Vostok 1, America established a new first. Alan Shepard became the first person to actually pilot a spacecraft while in space, as opposed to ride in a capsule as more or less a passenger. The mission included both automatic pilot and manual control segments. Shepard tested the Mercury's flight controls. He was aboard a a Mercury capsule. And he tested those flight controls to make sure that the spacecraft would react in a way similar to the way they had simulated it back on Earth. And he found that pretty much they reacted the same way the simulations did. Shepard's historic flight took place on May 5th, 1961, aboard the Mercury spacecraft that he named the Freedom 7. Uh, Each of the commanders of the Gemini spacecraft got to name their own spacecraft. And he called it the Freedom 7, not because it was the seventh Mercury capsule. It wasn't. Uh, He named it the Freedom 7 because 7 was the number of astronauts who were originally selected to be part of the Mercury program. So it was uh, the 7 referred to the number of astronauts, not to the capsule. And it became tradition. All the other Mercury capsule pilots would name their spacecraft a name plus the number 7. Shepard's flight was a suborbital one, so he did not go high enough or fast enough to go into Earth orbit. He flew up past the Karman line and came back down again. His flight was was more of a test flight to make sure that a human pilot could withstand the rigors of space travel and still operate the spacecraft properly. His flight lasted a little more than 15 minutes. He traveled about 302 miles or 486 kilometers away from the launch site in Cape Canaveral, Florida. He did go to space. Uh, his space ac- spacecraft actually reached an altitude of 187 and a half kilometers. So let's talk about what that spacecraft was like. 
Not the launch vehicle, the rocket. I'll talk about rockets in another episode, but the spacecraft itself. The Mercury Project started in the late 1950s, and the goal was putting an American in orbit, preferably before the Soviets did. That obviously didn't work out, but it the it did prove ultimately to be a success in more meaningful ways to test a lot of technologies that would be incorporated in later space projects. One of those ways was that the U.S. wanted to create a spacecraft that would allow a human operator to control it, including making adjustments to the spacecraft's orientation upon re-entry. Rather than go with that spherical approach that the Vostok spacecraft had, the Mercury is more of a cone shape. It's something that would be repeated with the Gemini, or if you prefer, Gemini, and Apollo spacecraft capsules. This helped reduce the surface area that they had to coat with heat shielding. Instead of coating the whole thing with heavy heat shielding, they just put it on the base of this cone. That was the part of the craft that would face the Earth at an angle while going through the descent. So it was the base of it that had to be heavily shielded against heat. The Mercury capsule was 3.3 meters long or 10.8 feet. It was 1.8 meters wide, that's about 6 feet. And the bottom side, the widest part of the spacecraft, the part that's pointed toward the ground, had the heat shield on it. And unlike the Vostok, the astronaut inside the Mercury was meant to stay in during the entire descent. They were not meant to eject from the spacecraft. So the Mercury would deploy a pair of parachutes to control and slow that descent. The first, which was called a drogue parachute, would release at 6,400 meters or 21,000 feet. And it was meant to provide stability during the descent. It really only had a minor effect on slowing down the spacecraft. The second parachute would deploy at 3,000 meters or 10,000 feet. That was the one that was meant to slow its descent. The Mercury was meant to land on water. Most of Earth's surface is covered by that stuff, so it made sense. Just before impact, the Mercury would deploy what was, in effect, a giant airbag to help absorb some of the force of impact. Because while hitting the water sounds like that would be great compared to, say, hitting a giant rock, hitting water at high speeds is rough stuff. So why is that? Why is it that when you hit water at a high speed, it feels almost like you're hitting a solid surface? Well, first, we need to talk about what makes us get hurt when we fall on solid ground. So it's physics time. When we fall and hit the ground, the ground is effectively hitting us back. That's the force we feel when we fall down and hit the ground. It's equal to the rate of change in momentum with respect to time. So momentum is equal to mass times velocity. So the mass, the amount of stuff that's in motion, and the velocity, which is the speed and direction of travel. And the force is dependent upon the rate of change in that value. So we can determine our momentum. We take our mass and we multiply it times the velocity we were traveling an instant before we make impact. The velocity in this case would be really closely tied to acceleration from gravity, unless something pushed us to get us going. But essentially, gravity is what we're using as our guide here. Anyway, the important thing here is that the rate of change of momentum is the key. Not just momentum, not just how fast you're going, but how quickly you go from moving that fast to not moving at all. If you slow down gradually, then obviously you don't, you don't feel a huge impact. But if you slow down instantly, you feel impact. So you're going a certain speed until you hit the ground, and then you've essentially stopped. We're going to ignore bouncing 
here. We're just saying splatting. The rate of change of momentum is incredible because you go from whatever the speed was to complete stop in pretty much an instant. Water is a little different from solid ground, obviously, because it has a bit of a give to it, right? If you slide into the water, then there's not a big deal. It, it, the rate of change in momentum ends up being a little slower than if we hit solid ground. You don't stop instantaneously because we displace water. But displacing water actually takes time because for water to move out of the way, it has to push against other molecules of water and that water has to move and so on. There's a ripple effect and that requires force and time. Water is one of those pesky substances that really resists compression. So you can't just squish it down. It moves. The molecules have to move out of the way. So the more water you attempt to displace in a very short amount of time, the less water you'll actually be able to displace. It, it's just not going to move out of the way fast enough. So as you increase the velocity of a mass and you aim it at water, you see less of a cushioning effect from the water itself. There's still some. Landing on water at a high velocity is not the same as hitting concrete at that same velocity. But the displacement of water will not be sufficient to make the landing a painless one. It's still going to hit you like it's a solid surface. So the airbags help take some of that force out, but not all of it. And it would transfer some of the force to the airbag and make the landing inside the mercury capsule survivable. It wouldn't be gentle, but it wouldn't be as jarring as, say, the Vostok capsule would have been if they had used a parachute. So the Mercury spacecraft would then, upon landing in the water, raise an antenna from the top of the spacecraft and send out radio signals that would alert nearby ships and helicopters where the capsule was so that they could come and retrieve the capsule, and more importantly, the astronaut inside the capsule. Shepard actually collaborated with the automatic pilot system in this test flight, this early flight. It wasn't a test flight, this early flight in the Mercury mission. It was an intended design of the Mercury spacecraft. So he used a controller that would send commands to the automatic system to fire rockets in order to get the spacecraft into the proper orientation for reentry. So essentially he would say, the spacecraft is in this particular orientation. I need it to move from this one to this new orientation. And then the automatic system would try to make those adjustments and turn the spacecraft the way uh, Shepard wanted it to. It didn't go off without a hitch. It was a little bit off, but it wasn't catastrophically off. The Freedom 7's orientation was not quite where NASA wanted it to be, and some of the indicators also failed during the landing process. It gave the incorrect impression that important sequences, like the retro rockets jettisoning off the heat shield, had not happened. And if that were the case, it could have been a terrible, terrible tragedy. But in fact, the retro rockets had jettisoned off. It's just the indicator light was not showing that having happened. But NASA was able to verify that, in fact, it did happen and everything turned out to be okay. According to Shepard, landing in the ocean wasn't that different from feeling like uh, landing a, a jet on an aircraft carrier. It was about the same kind of bumpy ride. It wasn't the smoothest experience, but it was tolerable. So his mission was a success. Uh, it probably would have been met with an enormous amount of enthusiasm if it were not for the fact that the Soviet Union had just put a man into orbit just a few weeks earlier. But it did solidify the U.S. approach to space travel, and it prepared the way for more Mercury missions as well as the Gemini and Apollo missions. Now, in our next episode, I'll talk more about 
the those missions as well as a little bit more about Vostok and uh, and Mercury. Uh, also, I'll talk about the spacecraft that the Soviets built after the Vostok capsules. In the meantime, if you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, maybe it's a technology or a company or a personality in tech I should cover, send me a message. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget we have a merchandise store now. Go to tpublic.com slash techstuff. That's teepublic.com slash techstuff to check out the merch. It's pretty sweet stuff if I do say so myself. And please follow us on Instagram. That's all for me today. I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 